uh, ever thought about how unorthodox uh, Jesus' strategy was uh, for starting the church? Just how it wouldn't seem to jive. Could you imagine going to a, a church conference, let's call it that, and you go with uh, the intent to learn about church planting or church revitalization and, and plans like that, and you're going to go sit in breakout sessions and you're going to hear strategies. You're going to probably expect to hear ideas about you know, if you're going to plant a church, you want to get the smartest people in the room, You know, get, get the guys that have the experience, the people who've been there, done that, surround yourself with a team of people who know what they're doing, they've planted churches before, they've got uh, the experience and have done that kind of thing. You might expect to get advice about you know tapping into people who have influence in the community or area you're going to go into. You know, you're going to want to find where what, what things influence that community. Where do people gather? What brings people together? What makes people tick? What are, who are the people who have authority and can speak into things and, and make connections with those people? You're going to probably hear advice about uh, having some savvy leaders or some pretty intelligent strategists as a part of your team, people who can look at a situation that has very little and come up with great ideas and plans and how to implement them to make the most of everything you've got. And you get all these great ideas and that's kind of what you're expecting when you go to this conference. Then you go and you sit in this breakout session and this guy named Jesus gets up and he starts talking and he's like, here's the strategy. We're going to take a handful of nobodies, a bunch of ordinary people. We're going to spend three years training and developing them. And when they are probably just dangerous enough that they get themselves into trouble, but not so uh, with it that they fully grasp the mission and the vision of everything, we're going to uh, send them out and give them the keys, if you would, uh, to kind of go on the conversation earlier and, and build this church. Could you imagine the faces or could you imagine what you'd be thinking sitting there hearing that? You'd get up and you'd give the survey back to the conference and be like, don't invite that guy back, right? He didn't give us a whole lot of great insight. And yet that's exactly what Jesus' strategy was. He took a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of ordinary guys. He spent a few years training, developing, teaching, showing them uh, all about his mission, his vision, the kingdom of God, uh, teaching them. And then right at this point when they're arguably not there yet, Jesus is leaving. And you start to imagine the questions that they might have. Well, what's next? Do we sit around? Do we wait for uh, what's... Are you going to send something to us? You you said you're going to send a spirit. uh, This paraclete, when's that going to come? How are we going to know? Imagine all the questions. And if there was a group of guys that needed prayer, it might have been them. And as we're looking here in John chapter 17, Jesus prays for that group of individuals. He prays for them because they're the ones who have received Him. They're the ones who have believed that the Father has sent Him. They're the ones that have heard and obeyed the Word of God as Jesus says to the Father here. And it's a beautiful thing to have a a glimpse into this prayer that Jesus offers on behalf of His disciples. And it's one of these things that I find interesting that as Jesus prays, this prayer in John 17 in many ways follows the model that He gave His disciples earlier in the Lord's Prayer. You're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You're familiar with the prayer. And as you look at John 17, Jesus follows that very model 
if you will. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven. Jesus prays, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I have manifested your name to the people. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus prays that the Father would keep his disciples in his name and protect them. Forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus says, Father, keep them from the evil one. And he asks that the Father would sanctify them in the truth, his word being truth. And it's just cool that Jesus brings that model and shows, in essence, if you were to get into it, how we can model our prayers in such a way. But he goes for the Lord on behalf of his disciples. And he does so to their benefit, both long-term and in the immediate. Right? If you uh, looked at verse 13, Jesus says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Having spent the last uh, few chapters of John, the last few uh, moments in real time with the disciples, giving them his last words, now Jesus prays seemingly in their context them in pre- in his presence hearing him pray these things and it would kind of jog our memory back to John chapter 11. You remember John chapter 11 when Jesus uh, goes to the tomb of Lazarus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus he lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays and he prays that on the benefit that those who are there standing with him might believe that he's been sent by God. He prays in such a way that it would be a benefit to them in that moment and likewise Jesus is praying here that it would be an encouragement for His disciples. You know the blessing and joy that it is when somebody is praying for you. When someone comes alongside and puts their arm around you and prays on your behalf. It's an encouragement to know that there's somebody going to the Father for you. Last week we got to do that with Julie. We brought her up and prayed for the trip that she's on. Imagine sitting there listening to Jesus pray on your behalf. The Son of God going directly to His Father and He prays for you. The things that Jesus prayed for His disciples would have meant something to them in that moment. What an encouragement. His prayer would have been both, in a sense, educational for them and, in a sense, encouraging to them. And really, in those ways, they kind of go hand in hand. Educational, in a sense, as Jesus prays, it shows and teaches the disciples a little bit about who the Father is. Shows them about their relationship to Him, that they have belonged to the Father, and the Father has given them to the Son, that now they can trust that the Father is keeping them. Educational in the sense that it says a little bit about who they are. That they have seen, believed, heard the Word of God. What an encouragement that must be sitting there and imagining all the questions that they have. And Jesus says, they, they get it. They have believed that You've sent Me. Watch over them. So just to sit there and, and hear these very words that Jesus would pray over them is so huge. 
But in the same way, as we look at this week's passage and next week's, Jesus' prayer is kind of a timeless prayer. It was a prayer that was definitely applicable then and there, right? In that moment, praying for the disciples. Next week, we'll pick up in verse 20, where Jesus will say, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's us. You go far enough down the road. We are those who've believed based on the word of the apostles. But even as we look at the very things that Jesus prays for his disciples in that moment, they're very similar to what the the case would be for a disciple today. Those who are in the world, not taken out of the world, those who are uh, sanctified, those who have a mission, those who Jesus has sent, uh, these things are true. It's like a timeless prayer. And so we look at these things and have a great encouragement even for ourselves today that Jesus prays these things. And it shows us a little bit about what His heart is and His desire is for His church, for His followers, for His disciples. So a couple of things I want to look at today just in our passage. There's so much that we could really spend time on. But I want to look at three different things that Jesus prays for His disciples. The first of which is He prays for their security in relationship to the Father. Look at verses 11 and 15. In 11 he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus isn't just having this idea of like, hey, just kind of keep them corralled, right? Like if you could just keep the disciples kind of in this area for a little bit, uh, much like you might think with little kids, like maybe downstairs in the nursery right now, the people down there are like, let's just, let's keep them in this room. Let's not have the kids running all over the place. That's not the idea that Jesus has. Literally this idea that he's speaking of is he's requesting that the Father would take an intentional look at the disciples. He would look after them. He would guard them. He would protect them. As I look at our room today, many of us have or have had children growing up in our homes. You ever have that time where you ask somebody else to watch your kids? Your idea isn't just to sit on the couch and kind of keep them occupied, but you want them to care for them. A protecting. And now, I'm going to be clear, Jesus isn't praying that the Father would babysit the disciples. But He is praying for His devoted attention and His protection for them. Then you start to ask the question, what is it that Jesus is wanting the Father to protect them from? What kind of protection does Jesus want for them? Now, if the protection that Jesus has in mind deals solely with their physical circumstances, then there'd be good reason to question whether or not the Father ever actually answered Jesus' prayer. How many of those guys went on to lose their life because of their faith? How many of them went on to suffer because of their faith? If if Jesus was praying, Father, just keep them from evil things happening to them, then one could question, did the Father answer Jesus' prayer? How many others of Jesus' followers have given the ultimate cost of following Jesus, laying their life for the sake of the Gospel? How many? 
If Jesus only has physical protection, the, that God would protect His followers from physical circumstances and from the harm done by the world, then we would have reason to question. But just before this, in His conversation, Jesus told the disciples of what was going to happen in chapter 16. They will put you out of the synagogues. He says that the hour is coming when you're going to die. People are going to kill you and they're going to think they're offering a service to God. These things are going to happen. These things are going to come. These are the realities that Jesus says the disciples ought to expect. So I don't think that when Jesus says, Father, keep them in your name, Father, keep them from the evil one, that He is only talking about the physical protection of the disciples. I think what Jesus has in mind is a far more spiritual focus. To keep them in your name. Notice the connection in verse 12 kind of gives a little bit of insight into this. While I was with them, I kept them. So Jesus says, I've been keeping the disciples in your name which you've given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Which, by the way, how rough to get a nickname of like, like that to go down in history. The son of destruction. So Jesus says, I've been guarding them. Not in the sense that they've not had to deal with any sort of persecution or trouble or anything like that, but I have kept them in the fold, if you will. Fulfilling the role and responsibility of the Good Shepherd. I have looked after them. I have nurtured them. I have guarded them from the attacks of the evil one. And now Jesus says, I am leaving them and entrusting that to you, Father. That you would look after them. And that's why Jesus would pray that I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Because that could be the easy solution, right? We don't need to deal with all the troubles of interacting with the world, the the confusion of how, how do we navigate those lines? How does God's people go about living in the world and not of the world and doing all those things? Well, you could just take them out of the world and then it's not a problem at all. Uh, Someone comes to saving faith in Jesus and boom, there, that's it. Their their eternity is secure. You can just take them out and that's the done deal. That's not what Jesus has in mind. In other words, what a reminder for the disciples that they are exactly where they're supposed to be. For you and I today, we are exactly where we are supposed to be in the world. In the world. And yet Jesus says and prays that the Father would protect them because He recognizes that in the world is a hostile environment. Not in the sense that you and I are here today, like some of our brothers and sisters, worried that someone's going to come knocking through the front door and cause us harm. But a hostile world in the sense that the world is opposed to the very message that we preach. It is opposed to the very hope that we cling to. It is opposed to the very God who has saved us. And so Jesus prays that the Father would keep them from the evil one. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't pray that he would guard them from the Pharisees and the scribes? He doesn't pray that he would guard them and protect them from the Romans. He doesn't pray none of those things. Protect them. Keep them from the evil one. Isn't it a reminder of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6? Who does the battle wage against? Other people? Human institutions? The 
battle wages against the spiritual forces of evil. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. we got to know the enemy. The enemy may work through those things, but the ultimate enemy isn't people. The ultimate enemy is the evil one. Father, keep them from the evil one. Guys, there is no greater assurance for us today than to know that we are being kept by the Father. Not a pastor or even other elders. Our ultimate keeping is in the hands of the Father. There's no greater security because He will never fail. There is no higher power or greater authority in the universe. There is no greater security for God's people than to be in the hands of the Father. So of all the things that Jesus could pray as He leaves this group of uneducated guys to fulfill this mission, He prays, Father, keep them secure in Your name. Keep them secure in your name. Secondly, Jesus prays for their solidarity in relationship to each other. Look at uh, verse 11. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As Jesus looks at leaving, He prays that the disciples would be united with each other. And this unity comes not just in our interests, not just in our preferences or our philosophies, because those things are multiple. There are many different philosophies on all life, ministry, you fill in the blank. But Jesus prays that we would be united in the Father's name, that as all believers, we are united in one Lord, one God, under one Gospel, in the name of the Father. That as Jesus sends His disciples, as He sends even us into the world, that we would stand arm in arm with one another in solidarity. How many times in Jesus' life and ministry has He talked about His being one with the Father? That He says and does what the Father says and does. That they are one. The Father is in Me and I am in Him. And Jesus says that He he prays that even we would be one. He's not praying for our uniformity, but He's praying for our unity. That in the diversity of our skills and gifts and passions that we could come together as a body, right? To use all of those things for His glory. But that we would be united in one head and that is Jesus Christ. Of all the things to pray for, Jesus prays that they would be united. That we would pray for same, the same kind of thing. With all the churches out there and all the different uh, viewpoints and divisions, could we not be united in the gospel? That we could stand arm in arm with some of the other churches in our area and say, we are working together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are working together for the same glory of the same God. And rather compete, let's work together. Let's stand united. Let's pray for one another. 
Let's use the different resources and, and opportunities that God has given our different churches and our people for His glory. Let's not compete, but let's be united. If you asked, uh, I'd be curious if you polled about 100 people in our area and asked who said a house divided against itself will not stand, who do you think most people would say said it? Abraham Lincoln. wonder where old Abe got it from. It is important and critical if we are going to have an effective mission in this world to stand in unity with one another. And so, let us pray to that end. That even in a small group of people like this, we have so many differences. Differences in stage of life. Differences in our interests, our hobbies, our jobs. Differences in our backgrounds. And yet, look around this room. We are gathered here in the name of Jesus. So let us pray that that unity, that bond would not be broken. That the enemy wouldn't gain a foothold in the church to divide. But that we would stand strong and united. This uh, this week, you guys ever remember the, the old movie Dinosaur? Okay, so Pete is infatuated with dinosaurs right now. So he, yesterday he says... Dad, I want to watch Dinosaur. So we sit in the couch and we're watching Dinosaur. And there's this scene in there where this whole herd of dinosaurs is trying to travel to uh, this this area with all the where they can have all the food and shelter and safety that they want. And as they're traveling there, there's these like T-Rexes that are following them. And they're all scared of these T-Rexes. And this one shows up behind him and everybody starts to freak. Everybody of these dinosaurs, right? <laughs> and they're like, you gotta run! We gotta run! We gotta go! And one of them says, no, don't run. Stand together. And he goes and he, he steps up and he starts pushing back against this T-Rex and then another one and another one and another one and another one. And all of a sudden you have this whole herd of these dinosaurs going and pushing back and, and they pushed back against the T-Rex not because they ran and, and fled for their own lives but because they stood together. It's a silly movie. But what a picture. What a picture of when uh, we could stand in unity, arm in arm with one another. Linking arms saying, we are in this together. My interests are your interests. We are a team, a family. Growing up playing sports, that was drilled into my head. You win as a team, you lose as a team. There's no I in team. Don't ask what Kobe had to say about that. We win and lose as a team. We are the people and family of God. And so it should be my desire to serve you. Your desire to serve others. It's our desire to serve one another because our interests are shared. We are linking arms, arm in arm, to stand together. If you want to fight the fight of the Christian faith and be effective, you can't do it on your own. How many times have we said in this church, Christianity isn't Rambo Christianity? We stand together in this thing. And that's the importance of why we come together and we fellowship. 
That's the importance of why we share meals with one another. That's the importance of why we do small groups. That's the importance of why we invite everybody who's here to to get involved in the family because we're not meant to do this thing on our own. We're meant to do this thing and live out our faith together in unity. And such is what Jesus prayed. Finally, finally Jesus prays for the sanctification of His disciples in relationship to the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, and as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This idea of sanctification, we're familiar with it in the church as this idea of our, our growing in holiness, our growing in likeness to Jesus Christ. That uh, as we go throughout life, we ought to, we're going through this process of sanctification, becoming more and more like God as He grows us and develops us as His followers. And there's this other idea of sanctification that also has to deal with being set apart. Right? Because this root word behind sanctification is this idea to be made holy. And to be holy is to be set apart, made pure. And Jesus speaks to both of these ideas when He talks about the sanctification of His disciples. That by nature, them being made holy, their nature not being like that of the world. They are not of the world. They're not of the world. And then in verse 19, He talks about that they may be sanctified in the truth being set apart. Jesus, when He says there in verse 19, I, uh, for their sake, I consecrate Myself. Same word. Same word. You could say Jesus says, I sanctify Myself. Now, let me ask you this. Does Jesus need to be made more holy? More pure? No. So what He is saying is, I set Myself apart that they may be set apart. So this idea of being sanctified, the Scriptures speak of it in two ways. Both in that process and in the past tense sense. That we have been sanctified. And Jesus prays that for His disciples that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, He says. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them pure. Change their nature. Continue this process of making them more like us in your word. But we also have been sanctified. That as those who follow Jesus, we have been set apart. That's why even in a letter like 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes to such a rough around the edges church, he greets them as saints or as holy ones. See, we aren't holy in and of ourselves. We are holy and set apart because of Jesus. He has made us holy. He has sanctified us. So, For those of us following Jesus, we recognize that we are on this journey, if you will, of being sanctified. Being made more and more like Christ. But we also have been set apart for His purposes. Jesus says 
As you send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. What a calling to be sent by God into the world. So let me ask you, just a personal evaluation question. What does your engagement with the world look like? If we are to be in the world on mission, what is your mission? Growing up, we all think about, well, what am I going to do with my life? That's the questions that we wrestle with, isn't it? What am I going to do? What job am I going to pursue? What's going to be my career? And we can start to define our mission by our vocation. We can define our mission by what we are going to do with our lives. I'm going to be the best stay-at-home mom that I can be. I'm going to be the best business owner that I can be. I'm going to be the best engineer. I'm going to be the best pastor. I'm going to be the best you fill in the blank. And we define our mission based on those things. Guys, your mission is much broader than that. Perhaps that's where you've been sent to fulfill your mission. But broadly speaking, as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, our mission, your mission, is to live as light in the darkness unto the glory of God. We have been sent into the world. The world is darkness. We have been sent as ambassadors of light, as sons of light into the world. We don't leave the world. That's been this struggle that sometimes the church has wrestled with over years and years. Do we just leave? Do we kind of succumb from the world and, and make our own little community and do as little to interact with and engage with the world around us? That's not the mission. That's not the mission. The mission is go into the world. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, He says, You are the lights of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. And he gives this picture of the light shining in the midst of the darkness. And he says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Because when think when Jesus is talking about letting your light shine before others, You're letting your light shine in the darkness. Your mission is to live as light in the darkness unto the glory of God. That others may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven not pat you on the back and say, man, how do you have it figured out? You're so great of a person. But that in those opportunities, what a platform that God has given to say, it ain't me. You ought to know the one who sanctified me. You ought to know the one who is at work in my life, who has changed me. He's the one who deserves all the glory. So our mission Corporately as a church, our mission as individual disciples of Jesus Christ is to engage with the world. Rub shoulders with the world. And the reality is as we do that, we are going to be walking against traffic. Everything else is coming head on and we're going this way. 
And we're going to rub shoulders with people. And as we do, Jesus says that's the mission of the church. That's the mission of the disciples, that we're not taking them out of the world, but we're leaving them here so that they may do the work of the kingdom of God. That others may see and believe. That others might give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So as Jesus prays for His disciples in these final hours, in these final moments with them, and prays in such a way that it would bring about the the fullness of His joy in their lives, He prays that they would be secure in the Father. He prays that they would stand united in solidarity with one another. He prays that they would be sanctified in the truth, set apart from the world, and called for the purposes of God. Of all the things to pray for, those are the things Jesus prays for. And I'm sure if we were thinking and praying for a group of individuals that we were sending for a church plan, we would pray, Lord, give them clarity, give them wisdom, provide for their needs, do all these things. And and Jesus prays those things in a spiritual way. That the greatest needs that His disciples have, the greatest needs that you have and that I have, are spiritual in nature. That we would be held firmly in the hands of the Father protected and guarded from our enemy who is not your neighbor, not your boss, not the government, not the empires of the world. Your enemy is the evil one. And your protection does not come from yourself. It comes from the Father. And He has given us a band of brothers, if you want to go that route, in the church to stand arm in arm with one another. This community of people is vital to the health of the Christian walk to be plugged in and doing life together. That's what we've been called to. And then let God use you in amazing ways. Continue in that process. Lord, change me, change me, change me. Grow me. Refine me to your glory. Use me in this, in this world to bring light into the darkness. Give me opportunities with my friends and my neighbors to preach the gospel in word and in deed that they may see and glorify you. It's not us. It's all about the Lord.